hey, thanks for being here today. And uh, it is good to, to have you here in person and to have you online. I'm going to ask if we can get the house lights up a bit so I can see all of your beautiful masks and, uh, and enjoy that experience of looking at part of you this morning. <clears throat> okay. We are uh, in a third week of this series on, on um, reinventing hospitality or on, in some ways, rediscovering hospitality. I want to walk you through some statistics about uh, mental health uh, illnesses, realities that people are living with today. And this is from, um, from, a web, um, from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health from their website, Great great place if you're looking for resources for, um, for learning about people who have a lived experience with mental illness. And I want to walk you through some of these and you'll begin to understand why because I think it's important for us to grasp some of this because today we're talking about hospitality and mental health and some exciting things as we get the end of, end of this morning that we'll talk more about. But I want you to look at some of these stats here. In any given year, one in five Canadians experiences a mental illness or addiction problem. One in five. Next one. By the time Canadians reach 40 years of age, one in two have or have had a mental illness. By the time you are 40 years old, for 50% of our population, people have been struggling with uh, some of this. 50% of Canadians would tell friends or co-workers that they have a family member with a mental illness. Now compare that to 72% who would discuss a diagnosis of cancer or 68% who would talk about diabetes. Now what I find really interesting about that statistic is that we would rather talk more about cancer or diabetes than we would about someone in our family with a, with a mental illness. And, and that I found really fascinating as I looked at that. 42% of Canadians were unsure whether they would socialize with a friend who has a mental illness. 55% said they would be unlikely to enter a spousal relationship with someone who has a mental illness. So nearly half of us, if there's someone in our life with, with a mental illness, uh, we might just be distant from them. 64% of Ontario workers would be concerned about how work would be affected if a colleague had a mental illness. 39% of Ontario workers indicate that they would not tell their managers if they were experiencing a mental health problem. These are really high percentages of what you see as a stigma attached to mental health. And this isn't from 2000. This is, I believe, from 2016, uh, these, these numbers coming in. So not that long ago. In this last one here, 40% of respondents to a 2016 survey agreed they have experienced feelings of anxiety or depression, but never sought medical help for it. 40% of people are, are saying, hey, I have a lived experience with mental illness, but I'm probably too afraid to actually do anything about it because of the stigma attached to it. If people found out that I was wrestling with this, what would they think? And that is part of why we are moving towards, as a congregation, trying to do something to respond to the increase of, 
of mental health issues that people are living with daily, particularly in this time of COVID-19, we have seen a significant increase in people living with anxiety or living with depression. And it's kind of at that place where, where we want to be able to say, that's enough. Let's do something about this. People want help. People want to be healed. They want to be free. They want to, if that can't happen, they want to be accepted. They are looking for help. They are looking for healing. They are looking for acceptance. And we want to be able to offer them something that is going to help towards that. Yet there's this stigma still attached to mental health. And part of today is to just raise our awareness and to get us to think about my response, your response, to the stigma attached to those with a lived experience of mental illness. So I chose a passage of scripture today that I think uh, a lot of people will be able to relate to, and we're going to unpack it for a few minutes. It's from Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. And you can also find it at the end of Mark chapter 1. I just have kind of focused in on these two versions of it today. But in Luke 5 chapter 12, we read this story. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And when the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him. I am willing. He said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy left him. The leprosy disappeared. And then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. I think that this story resonates so well with what we're talking about today. Because I think there's some some lessons that we learn in how Jesus responds to people who are looking for healing and who are looking for help and who are looking for acceptance. This man came to Jesus, and he was desperate. If we look at verse 12, in one of the villages, he met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. It was advanced. He had been living with this for years. It was, it was a, a stigma that was attached to him. When you were living with leprosy, you were excluded in the community. You were sent away. You couldn't be part of the normal population And that was difficult. And at an advanced case of leprosy, he had been living with this for years. The exclusion, the being ostracized, being kept away from regular people. And when he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging, begging to be healed. This was a guy who wanted to be included, who wanted to be accepted, and yet couldn't because of all of the challenges and the stigmas that were attached to his disease. Uh, 
in that day and age, at the time of Jesus in the first century, there was a common conception that if you were suffering from leprosy, it was probably because of some sin in your life, something that you had done wrong, not, not necessarily the same as karma, but there was this idea that you had done something and that must be why you are suffering from this, which just added to the exclusion it wasn't just that I might catch something from this person, but it's also that this person actually is a bad person and that they kind of deserve what they're getting. This was what this man's lived experience was, and he was desperate to do something about it. He wanted help. He wanted to be included. Today is not about saying that somehow mental health is the same as leprosy. It's not contagious. Uh, it's an entirely different uh, world. So I'm not trying to make a comparison. What I'm looking at is a story where, where Jesus gives us an example of how we engage in compassion and how we engage in solidarity and risk. See, there's a, there's a mutual risk happening in this story. And I'm not sure if you, if you picked up on it. But he says to Jesus, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. This man didn't have a, a problem with the fact that God could heal or that Jesus could heal him. I'm not sure if he was at a place where he thought Jesus was God. But he seemed to have a pretty good idea in his mind that Jesus could heal him. The question that he was left with is, would he? And I think this is a wonderful representation of where so many people are at today. See, I think most people have an awareness that there's a God, that there's a higher power, that there is a, a divine being. We would want to introduce them to that higher power, that divine being, by introducing them to Jesus. But apart from that, many people have an awareness of God and they even have a faith that God can heal people, that God can intervene. But the question that they're left wrestling with is, will he? And it's a big obstacle to faith. It's not whether there's a God who can do something, it's whether that God cares enough to actually do something for me. Does he care enough that he'll do something for me? And this is what this man, this is what he's living with. Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. People assume God can heal. They're just not sure if he will. And that is, I think, the reality that we're left trying to address as people who are following Jesus and wanting to to make a difference in the lives of other people. So that man took a huge risk. See, he left the colony, and Luke says that Jesus met this man in this passage. If you go to Mark chapter 1, the end of Mark chapter 1, it says that the man went to Jesus, the man came to Jesus. He took a huge risk. It was entirely inappropriate for him to actually go up to Jesus like that and to begin having a conversation with Jesus. He didn't declare himself to be unclean. He's close enough that Jesus could reach out and touch this man. He took a risk. And the risk was actually that, uh, that there would be repercussions and consequences to him potentially infecting people. 
but he was desperate. Desperate for acceptance, desperate for inclusion, and he took that risk. That is a huge risk. And what we just saw in the stats here this morning is that most people feel like the risk of identifying as having a lived experience with mental illness is too great because of the stigma attached to that. But what's interesting about this story is Jesus equally takes a risk with this man as he approaches him. See, that man came to Jesus and he said, if you are willing, you can heal me. And Jesus could have looked at this man and said, yeah, I'm good, you're healed. I don't know, snapping the fingers seems to be the thing that you do for, for stuff like that. Jesus could have just responded and said, of course I'm willing, you're healed. But if you look at this verse, I want you to notice that word at the end of the first line. Jesus reached out and he touched him. I am willing to be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. He reached out his hand and he touched him. And I'd like for you to just let that sink in for a bit. This man had an advanced case of leprosy. If you've never seen leprosy, go home today and Google it. Do it after you eat your lunch. Jesus reached out and he touched him. He didn't have to. By touching that man, Jesus made himself ceremonially unclean. He risked infecting himself. By touching that man, he risked his social status. By touching that man, he risked an emotional connection of rejection. If that man pulled back and said, what are you doing? And then the whole scene could have fallen apart in a heartbeat. Jesus took a huge risk by being willing to identify with this man. And compassion involves risk. By risking the touch of this man, Jesus did something really profound. He entered into solidarity with him. He identified with him. Solidarity. Um, Wayne, I'm going to ask you to do something. Go back to that picture of the woman. And I, and I look at that picture and I just think it's so hard to look at. And I want to look away because it's, it's messing with my eyes, it's messing with my mind. And, and I think it's a wonderful image of how we tend to respond to people that have stigmas attached to them. And yet solidarity is reaching out and holding another person's hand. It's identifying with them. It is it is coming alongside of them and saying, I will associate with you and I will take the risk of being identified with you. When you enter into solidarity with another person, you're not overtaking them, you're not diminishing them, you are simply coming alongside of and identifying with. 
And solidarity seeks to understand. Solidarity seeks to, to relate to. And solidarity seeks to, um, to identify with the person that you are, you are coming alongside of. And Jesus, taking the risk that he did, you know, set the stigma aside and said, no, I'm going to identify with you. I'm going to actually touch you. And he entered into solidarity. And Jesus was a master at modeling for us what solidarity looks like. And we hear a lot about that in our world today, about being in solidarity with. And it's important for us, I think, to realize that it's not about overtaking. And you've heard about some of the examples with the Black Lives Matter, about how it's become, almost in some cases, it's become a white movement. And, and people of color or, or black people are pushed off to the side. And that's not what solidarity is. It's identifying with, it's coming alongside, but it's not overtaking it and it's not diminishing. <clears throat> when Christians are gathered together with Jesus at the center, stigmas fall away. And when I was thinking about that today, what I wanted to say was where Christians are gathered and centered on Jesus, there are no stigmas. But then I realized that's not true. Because there's always somebody that's afraid of something. And, and in, in a church, in a faith community, we are always inviting new people in. And new people uh, are bringing stuff that needs to be softened. And edges that need to be taken off. And that's the work that Jesus does. So what I think happens is when Christians are gathered and centered on Jesus, the stigmas that we have around certain issues begin to fall away because we begin to learn from Jesus and we let him indwell us and then we become more and more in his likeness, not only as individuals but as a community. And so I think we are always in this perpetual process of seeing stigmas fall away as we stay centered on Jesus. Now, if you have your Bibles and you're following along, as I read this passage, the man comes to Jesus to be healed, says, if you're willing, you can heal me. Jesus says, I am willing. He touches him, and instantly the, the leprosy leaves. And then curiously, Jesus um, tells the man uh, not to tell anyone what had happened. Why would Jesus say to this man, don't tell anyone what just happened? And I think that's a natural question to ask when you read this story. Because Luke makes it so prominent, as does Mark. Man, this, you just healed this guy. Like, you just instantly, the leprosy left him. And I don't know what that would look like, but it was there one moment, and then Luke says immediately it was gone. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody. Why would he do that? And what he does is he begins to say to him, now go show yourself to the priest so that the priest can declare you ceremonial, ceremonially clean. So you can read about this in Luke four, or Leviticus 14. Go to Leviticus 14. There's a whole section in there around um, the, uh, the Mosaic law and how you were to deal with skin infections and how someone could be declared clean. And that's essentially what Jesus is doing. And I'm not sure we're fully aware or understand why Jesus specifically told him to do this. But I, I think there's a hint in this passage. At the end of the passage, the crowds grow and Jesus has to pull away. 
and isolate because Jesus understands that as human beings, we just get weirded out with, with the miraculous. We don't handle it well. We get caught up in all the hype and we forget, we forget what's going on behind the scenes and that's God is actively intervening and involved in this world. And I think Jesus is just very careful because for Jesus, compassion is more important than recognition. And he doesn't want this to be a healing ministry. Jesus isn't interested in having a healing ministry. What he's interested in is this gentleman and what he's presenting right now and showing his followers what compassion looks like and what solidarity looks like. And in this case, that is far more important than the recognition that comes with a healing ministry. That's, that's what I'm surmising. So here's a question I want to ask you. What does healing look like? In this passage, the leprosy disappeared. What does it look like for somebody to be healed? We live in a very different day and age than 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine. I believe healing happens today because I believe Jesus is still alive and present in this world. God is still actively working in this world. But there is an obstacle to this whole concept, and it's not really around healing. It's actually, I think, around the lack of healing. Why do some people get healed and others don't? And the most prevalent case for us today in our culture here um, is cancer is the most dominant um, kind of uh, case study. Some people get healed from cancer, other people don't. And, and this is not about um, whether or not science works compared to faith. Um, I, I think it's foolish to just assume that we don't need doctors and nurses and medicine. Uh, that is miraculous enough, what we have learned over the centuries about medicine and healing people. But apart from all of that, there are still healings that take place that we can't explain and we can't really identify. And we're living in this tension of, of what healing looks like, particularly when it comes to people with a lived experience of mental illness. What does healing look like? I'm not sure we're given a really great kind of explanation of how this works and plays out in our world today. Here's what I do know. Jesus healed people. He healed this man. But the question that you could ask is, what about all the other people in the village or the one next to it that were living with leprosy that didn't get healed? Why? And the question still lingers today. And I think if we were to ask that question, part of the response that we see in the biblical writers as they tell us the story of Jesus and the work of God through the early church is simply this. There is an end that's 
put in place for all of this. But in the meantime, we are still in this cosmic battle. And so, yes, God is at work in this world, and he's at work in many different ways. But there is a battle that's taking place, and there are, there are elements of darkness and evil that are still at play in this world. And I think sometimes we forget about that. Particularly, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make fun of us a little bit here. We live in a leisure community. We live in a four-season resort community. A Collingwood, Wasega Beach, the Blue Mountains. Uh, and for a lot of people, life is about pleasure. Life is about taking it easy. Life is about enjoying things. And, and as Christians, we want to enjoy life, but we also need to remember that we are still in this cosmic battle, that, that the earliest followers of Jesus just assumed the presence of evil and bad things happening in this world. And they didn't get caught up too much in, in the intellectual exercise of trying to figure it out. They just said, we need to do something about it. So they addressed it, and they did things about it. And I think sometimes we forget about that. It's kind of like people going for a picnic during World War II on the beaches of Normandy. It's lovely. It's a sunny day. It's beautiful. Let's just enjoy our picnic. And all around them, there's a battle raging. And it's a good reminder for us to be aware that there's a battle taking place for so many people. And part of our job is to partner with Jesus in, in moving in to do something about that. And that is where solidarity becomes so, so important. And I think in this case, it might just be that the acceptance of this man was just as important as his healing. And I think sometimes acceptance is so critically important because we live in the tension that some people may find healing or wholeness, whatever language you want to use, and others won't. And what does it mean to be compassionate in solidarity with and accepting of those who are still living with that experience? This story is a wonderful example for us of what, what it looks like to, to receive people or to go to people and to enter into solidarity with, to do something about, about addressing an issue in a way that doesn't diminish the person but in a way that includes them and, and seeks to understand and accepts them. So this leads me to what I want to finish up with, and this is something that we are doing here at New Life, of which you all have a part. You all have a part to play in it. We are in the process of developing some support groups for people with a lived experience of mental illness, particularly around the issues of anxiety and depression. And so we have, uh, we have uh, entered into a relationship with or a contract with a, uh, a couple of psychotherapists that we are bringing in to do some training of some people who can lead support groups for those with anxiety or depression. And so that's happening in the month of October, near the end of October. And so we're looking to train up about eight to ten people so we could have four or five potential uh, support groups in our region for people that, uh, that have this as a lived experience. And we are going to train them up as leaders, not as professionals, 
to develop groups where people can get together, they can, they can talk, they can receive help, they can learn, they can grow together, and they can be accepted uh, and included with other people who understand what it's like, what they're going through. And as far as we know, we haven't been able to ascertain that there are other groups like this in existence in our region. There might be in other places, but not within a driving distance, really, or an easy driving distance of our area. And yet we know that anxiety is on the rise among young people. We know that depression is on the rise among many people, particularly during this COVID time. And so this is one thing that we're doing, trying to to make a difference here. So this is what you can do. The first is, if you are interested in taking the training to be a leader of a group, uh, we, would, we, we don't do anything by ourselves, you're always paired up with other people, then I would invite you to talk with me. And uh, I forgot to put it on the slide here, but on screen, um, you can email me, paul at newlifecollingwood.com. You can call the church, go to the website, all the info's there for staff and contacting them. Uh, Paul at newlifecollingwood.com. I'd love to hear from you. This isn't kind of a wide open thing like that you can just come and learn about, about this. This is for people who are willing to then go to the next level and actually start leading a group. Uh, we can have some other training nights just to give information, but this is about actually doing something. So please see me and we'll talk more about that. So that's one of the things you can do. Another thing that you can do is spread the word is let people know that we're starting these up. And, uh, and this is experimental, so we're not fully sure how that's going to work. We're figuring out how to approach people, uh, professionals in, uh, in the mental health profession, and saying, hey, we're offering these groups. Uh, would you like to help make people aware of these? And then one of the things that we're doing is actually being training our people to spot if somebody needs to see a professional so that we could refer them. And uh, it's just a way to try to create community and to create help so you can spread the word about these groups and I would ask that you pray pray for us as we pursue this and if it's something that you actually think hey I'd love to be a part of one of those groups then certainly keep your ears open we'll be we'll be promoting those and we'll be uh, giving more information about them as they come Hospitality and mental health, uh, to me, is just um, a wonderful opportunity in this day and age for us to love people that are in need, love the stranger, which is what hospitality means. And uh, we've got this wonderful window of opportunity, and we want to invite you to just join together in supporting this, in praying for us, for those who are involved. And I think this is going to lead down the road to, to more opportunities to engage in this area even for providing um, resources and, and even financial help for those that may have difficulty accessing paid professionals. It's about solidarity. It's about risk, compassion, following the pattern of Jesus. And, uh, and we want to do something about this growing need we see in our region, and we're excited about it. So those are some of the things you can do. I'm going to invite you to pray with me now as we wrap up this morning. And um, thanks for, for joining us. Father, we're grateful for the day. We are grateful for the chance to gather here in person, to gather online. We recognize in this story that each of us is looking for acceptance, for inclusion. Each of us is looking for healing of something in our lives.
whether it's physical, emotional, relational, or spiritual, we see the importance of eliminating the stigmas and pray that as a community we would keep you in our very central focus so that we could receive from you and let your love, your compassion, your mercy, your justice flow through us into our communities, into our world. We're thankful for the day, and we're thankful for the opportunity that lies in front of us. We feel like you're a part of this, you're already in this, and that you are leading us well through this. Amen. Amen. Thank you for today. Um, Next week, if you are joining us here or if you are tuning in online, we're going to look at hosting your enemies as a wonderful way to practice hospitality. We'll see you next week.